Thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to look at your word. And for all those that will listen to it on the internet, we thank you for that. And we just ask you to bless and anoint in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 44, starting at verse 1. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looks toward the east, and it was shut. Then the Lord said unto me, This gate shall be shut, and it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered in by it. Therefore shall it be shut. It is for the prince, the prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of, the, of the, that gate, and shall go out by the way of the same. All right, that's the end of this first chapter, <laughs> uh, first paragraph. So... He's been showing him the altar, the sacrifices of the millennial time. And now he brings him back to the outer sanctuary. And he takes him to the gate that went in and to the east. And we remember a couple of chapters ago that when he described the eastern gate, the glory of the Lord poured through that gate and entered into the sanctuary. And it is said that in Solomon's temple, the east gate was shut. So from probably this prophecy right here that the east gate was to be shut and was only for the prince or Jesus. And uh, so maybe even in the millennial kingdom it'll be his gate. I don't know. It seems to indicate this, that it'll be his gate and everybody else will be going in. And and the more I've been reading this, the more I'm thinking that this is partially the millennial kingdom's temple and partially the next temple that in Ezekiel's day was... Saul, uh, turned out to be uh, Herod's temple uh, because they're just back and forth and this isn't unusual for prophecies to go back and forth to, to a closer time to a further time and it was part of the way that they understood that they were fulfilled is that the prophet would say something that would be fulfilled instantly and then have a deeper meaning later on when Isaiah tells us that a virgin shall give birth uh, to the king of kings there were, the king had a new bride that, that he had just married that gave birth to a virgin for the immediate symbol of the fulfillment and then there was the real fulfillment later on when Jesus was born of a virgin so this happens frequently in the Jewish mindset that we have something that happens on the near side and then in the long term uh, the near side is never a f- complete fulfillment of it so he says, this gate is to be shut, and it is for the prince, in verse 3. The prince, he shall sit in it and eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter in by the way of the porch of that gate, and he shall go out by the same way, but basically showing the deity of Christ, that he has the permission to be in the very place that the Father went through. And... Uh, this is something that the Jews are still looking to this day is that prince, the Messiah, the one that's going to set up this kingdom that is going to be the eternal kingdom. They don't really recognize him as the son of God, but they recognize him as the one who's going to bring glory and majesty to be the fulfillment of the David's rule over the nations. And this is part of what they had, the problems with Jesus. He didn't set up that permanent rule and get rid of of Rome and didn't set up a kingdom and, and didn't set up their eternal kingdom that they were expecting. And then on top of that, he claimed to be God, which bothered them. 
So we've got all these problems coming in from the Jewish perspective, and this is what they're looking for. They're looking for the king who's, who's going to rule over them and be the one that sets up a kingdom, will have the presence to be able to go in before God and have that acceptance. And they're still waiting for that, which is why when the Antichrist rises up and appears to be their Messiah, they're going to accept him at first because he's going to fulfill all of their things that they're expecting. He's going to give them peace in Jerusalem. He's going to get the temple built. He's going to let them worship the way they want to worship. And he's going to appear to be setting up their kingdom that they've been long awaiting for. And especially with all the troubles that they're going through in, in our day and age with their, with their country and all the, all the attacks they keep getting and, and all the constant attacks they get from the UN and from the, from the Palestinian authorities and everything, they'll be looking forward to this day when the Antichrist rises up and gives them a temporary peace and says, this is it, I'm your, you know, might even use Messiah, you know, you know, in a general sense, because we're starting to throw that word around a lot in this day. You know, this is the Messiah, he's saving things. And we want to be careful with that use. It's, it's only meant for one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And yet we hear that thrown around by the media a lot. And it's just setting that stage so that when the Messiah, the false Messiah comes, the term's going to be used to people. People are going to be used to that term. Verse 4, then brought me, then brought, he brought, then brought he me the way to the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell upon my face. And the Lord said unto me, Son of man, mark well, and behold with your eyes, and hear with your ears all that I say unto thee concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord, and the laws thereof, and mark well the entering into the house, and every going forth in, of the sanctuary. And you shall say unto the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, O you house of Israel, let it suffice you of all your abominations, in that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when you offer my bread, the fat and the blood, and, and they have broken my commandments, and because of all your abominations, and you have not kept the charge of my holy things, but you have set keepers of my charge in my sanctuary for yourself. All right, so now he's taken him to the north gate from the, from the east gate, and he sees the glory of God upon the temple. And he does what everybody does when they see the glory of God, he falls on his face. He saw that and he says, and I fell on my face. Moses has done this. Uh, Isaiah pretty much does this in his vision. I mean, all these people will immediately fall on their face when they see God. And here's Ezekiel's answer to it. He falls on his face to worship, to be in the presence of God. And the few times that I have really, really felt the presence of God, it brings you to worship. At least it does me. God's presence falls heavily on it, and I just want to worship. And I've seen this a few times in my life where the presence is just so heavy, not as heavy as he sees it here in its, in its beauty of, in fullness. I'm sure if I saw that, I would be, go beyond worship to falling on my face. But just when you feel God's presence, you just want to worship him. And it's just amazing when it, when it happens, and it's a great feeling, and to bring that 
just that reverent awe of God when you feel his presence. And then God said unto him, says, Son of man, mark well and behold with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you, considering the ordinances of the house of the Lord. So he's basically saying, remember, remember the laws. You know, this God tells us all the time, remember what I've said, what I expect, you know, the, my ordinances, my, my, my rules. I mean, Sunday we talked about this, the rules of God. It says the, the, the end of the law is love. And true godly love, agape love, does fulfill the law and drives us to being kind to one another, keeping, not harming one another, lifting up one another, lifting God up. True godly love that he gives us as a gift leads us to be obedient to the law. And here he's saying, mark well. Make sure you're telling them about these things. You know, look at what's going on. See the entering, see the going out of the sanctuary. And then you shall say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, in case he wasn't sure who the rebellious people were, and that he's been bringing this up frequently, that they're rebellious. You know, say to them, thus saith the Lord God, O you house of Israel, let it suffice you of all your abominations in which you have brought into my sanctuary strangers uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to pollute it, even my house when you offer my bread and fat and blood, and they have broken my commandments because of all your abominations. Here I think a strangers are not just literally Gentiles, but themselves, though the, their own people that were not following God. And Paul says this in the New Testament, that not all Jews are circumcised in their heart. Uh, Isaiah will say the same thing. Many of the prophets say the same thing. God wants you to have a circumcised heart, O people. It's not, and he's clear that just being born a Jew is not what makes them special to God. It's that desire to serve him. And he says here, you know, you've brought in my sanctuary, uh, strangers and uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary. So he says, there's Gentiles, but also these that have not been circumcised in their heart. And I'm, I find it hard to believe that there were ever Gentiles in any of these temples, but God said it, so I'm going to have to believe it. And because I know in, in Herod's temple, they had great big signs that said, any Gentiles beyond this point will, will be killed. So but God says that there were Gentiles in these courts. He said that they were hiring people to serve in these temples. And God said the Levites were to serve in the temple and not other people. Uh, and in the, in the Jewish faith, you couldn't decide, I want to be, be a priest in the, in the temple if you weren't of the house of Levi. You could be like Samuel, Samuel who was put into the house to serve, but he could never go further than that because he wasn't a priest. And but here, you know, in our day and age, anybody who wants to serve God can become a pastor or an evangelist. But for the Jewish people, only the Levites were able to do the service in the temple. And we see all of this that goes on. And he says, you've polluted my house and you've offered the, my bread, which is the show bread, the fat, which is the part of the offerings that he got all the time, and the blood as it, and they have broken my commandments and caused all your abominations. So here we say God saying, basically the same thing Samuel said to Saul when he made the offering. He goes, God wants obedience more 
than sacrifice. And here he's saying, you were sacrificing, but you didn't do it the way I said to do it. And oftentimes, even in our day, we tend to try to please God. You know, God, if I'm really good, you're going to listen to me more. God, if I'm really good, you're going to bless me. And we don't understand grace hardly at all. And we all get this where we get kind of desperate and we want that touch of God and we start trying to bargain with God. Okay, God, let me go do something. Let me go do something because I don't fully trust your grace. And this is something that is critical that we listen to him and understand grace. We have nothing except by his grace. And he will take pleasure in our service, but he's not going to give us more because we do more. He's not going to give us less because we do more. He just says, do you love me? Are you serving me because of love? Because all I've given you is grace. You have all the riches of heaven because of grace. And we've got to really start understanding grace. Because I've seen it, even tried it on times in myself. You know, God, I'm going to try to do better. Because I'm praying for some blessing. And God's saying, and I can hear God's heart break. You know, don't you understand? It's all by grace. I just want to love you and give you gifts. Just as a good parent wants to give things to their children. They're not saying, well, kid, do you deserve this? Now there are parents that do that. But a good parent is just lovingly wanting to give to their children. And that's God. He's a good parent. He wants to give us blessings. And here he says, you know, you've done all this stuff for the wrong reasons. In verse 8, you have not kept the charge of my holy things, but you have set keepers of my charge and my sanctuary for yourselves. In other words, Levites, you've hired others to do it. You've hired other people to do what you are supposed to do. And it would be one thing if they used them just to help them when times got tough, but basically he's saying you guys are being lazy, not doing what you're supposed to, and you've got others doing your work. And sometimes that happens in churches where we hire people to do things that the body can do And whether that's good or bad, I haven't ever fully come through. But looking at this, God says, we can serve. We can serve and we need to, if we're going to hire, we probably should hire people within our own church to serve as much as possible. And I've seen churches where their secretary is not even a Christian, much less a member of their church. Their their janitor is some service that doesn't care about about the church. You know, they're just there for, for a buck. And each, each position becomes manned by people who aren't Christians, who aren't believers. And that's a pretty sad state of affairs to get into, especially if you have people in your church that need work. And maybe they can or can't do it, but some of these jobs anybody could do. And, we want, and this is what he's saying. He's criticizing the Levites. You have gone out and you have hired people to do what you're supposed to be doing. And that would make God angry, especially it seems how the Levites were his he, he purchased them and said, they're mine. They're my, they're my inheritance out of Israel. Instead of requiring the firstborn of every family, he said, I'm going to take the whole tribe of Levi, and they will be mine, and, and instead of the firstborn of every family, which he said was mine. And he, he, they were redeemed by the Levites. And so we see this issue going on with God. Verse 9, Thus saith the Lord God, No stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in the flesh shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. And the Levites that have gone away, far away from me when Israel went astray, which went astray 
away from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having charge at the gates of the house and ministering in the house, and they shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the priest, and they shall stand before them to minister unto them, because they are they have ministered unto them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have lifted up my hand against them, says the Lord God, and they shall bear their iniquity, and they shall not come near unto me to do the office of the priest unto me, nor come to near to any of my holy things in the most in the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abomination which they have committed, but I will make them keepers of the charge of the house of, for all the service thereof and for all that shall be done therein. All right, here God's saying, again he reiterates, no strangers, no uncircumcised in the part, no uncircumcised shall come into the sanctuary and he says very clearly, even of the strangers that live in Israel, in verse 9. So even those aliens that live in there, they've made their life in Israel, maybe even are choosing to accept him as their God, unless they become a Jew and this, you know, a Levite, they're not to come into the sanctuary. Now that doesn't mean the temple. They can come into the outer gates and they can offer their sacrifices. They just can't go into the holy place or the holy of holies. And the Holy of Holies was off limits to everybody but the high priest once a year. And the holy place they went in and out of on a daily basis, placing the showbread and the oil and the, and the incense. They did much work in the, in the holy place. And it says, The Levites that have gone away from me when Israel went astray, which went astray away from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. And I think here God is saying, because he's going to look and say, they're still going to serve me. They're still going to do my work. The, because of his mercy and his grace, they still, they still had their life because of mercy. And by his grace, they were allowed to come into the sanctuary, the, the temple area, and serve him. Very much as we as Christians, we do not lose our salvation because we do things wrong. We will still go into heaven, but we lose the intimacy of our relationship of God while we're sinning and, and unrepentant. And here he's saying, these priests, these Levites, are not going to have the intimacy of the relationship to go into the holy place, to go into the holy of holies. They get to serve God. They get to do all the work, which is better than not doing it if you're really wanting to follow God. But they don't get the intimacy. They don't get to go into the holy place. They don't get to go into the, into the finer points of being in a relationship with God. And the same thing for us as Christians. When we're unrepentant and in sin, God says, I'm going to bring you to heaven, but you don't have the relationship with me. And that relationship is everything. When you really know the relationship with God, that is everything. To know that I have the throne room of heaven open to me, that I can have access to God. I know that he hears my prayers and I can feel him guiding and leading me is the greatest thing, but sin will break that intimacy. If I have unrepented sin in my heart, that intimacy with God is broken. The only difference for us as Christians is when we repent, he forgives us and we get that intimacy back. These people didn't seem to get that intimacy, at least not in this particular chapter. They're, they are stuck, mostly because they don't understand that they're in a relationship with God. They just see rules and regulations, and that's mostly what the Jews see, and the sad thing, that's what a lot of Christians see. Rules and regulations, not intimacy with God. 
And God is just saying, I want to know you. I want to be your friend. I want to love you. I want you to be my child and just know what it means to be loved. And oh, the love of God is so wonderful. <laughs> when we experience that love and that intimacy with him, it's such a, such a blessing to not have to go through all the stuff and all these steps, you know, not to have to go through, you know, this is what I do to repentance. I crawl on my knees for five miles and, and I say these words or whatever they might be, you know, and then God will accept me because of how much I've suffered. That is not what God desires from us. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And that isn't a salvation scripture. That is a relationships scripture. We confess to him. We say that, our, that what we've done is a sin and he restores that fellowship with him and we get that intimacy back with him that we should always know. And when we get saved, we oftentimes understand this. You know, when we first get saved and we truly repent and come to God and we feel that just awe-inspiring presence of God and the change of life that he gives us, and then over time we tend to lose it uh, because we start replacing this grace and there are so many Christians who understand we're saved by grace. But there's so many Christians who want to try to believe we're kept by works, not by grace. And God is not going to love me any more today, 46 years after I accepted him, than he did 46 years ago when I first accepted him. It's, he's not loving me anymore. He still loves me the same. And yes, he's worked a lot of things out of my life. Yes, by human standpoints, I can go, yeah, God deserves to love me more. But no, God knows who I really am. He knows my heart. He knows that I don't deserve to be loved any more than I did 46 years ago. And it's still all by grace. And for each person listening, that is what it is. It's by grace. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. And when we die, he will glorify us by his grace and make us who he said, he said we were from the very beginning. And just the power of grace is uh, something we really do have to get to understand. And I've seen so many people that get bogged down in rules and regulations and they forget the grace of God. And they're going, well, yeah, I know I got saved by grace, but you know, I've just got to do these things for God. I've got to do whatever it might be, whatever their law is that they're binding themselves under. Got to do this, otherwise he's not going to bless me. Well, I don't know. He blessed me pretty good when he gave me a new life and made me a new creation and took away a bunch of the sins right off the bat and has raised me up over the years with sanctification. He's been doing things all, all my life. I love the, the intimacy with him. And we get to live under that grace and, and live with him. He says they, in verse 11, Yet they shall be my ministers in my sanctuary, having charge of the gates of the house, ministering to the house, and they shall slay the burnt offerings and the sacrifices of the people, and they shall stand before them and to minister unto them. You know, so they get to do the gatekeepers. They get to do the menial tasks. They get to do the cleaning. They get to kill the animals, slay the animals, but they're not going to get to, to do the intimacy, intimate relationship with God. Because they have ministered unto them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, Therefore, I have lifted up my hand against them, says the Lord, and they shall bear their iniquity. When we're out of fellowship, there's a, there's a problem. And, there's, and even when we repent, there's consequences for our sin that we're going to live under. Even though God has graciously forgiven us and brought us back into relationship, the consequences of our sins will be out there. The, 
hardening of the relationship between others, the damage to the testimony that might have been in, in, incurred because of the, the sin, and, and especially if we draw others away from him in the iniquity like the, like the priest did. He says, the priests have taken people out from fellowship with me. He says, they will bear their iniquity. This is what we've said about teachers. Teachers have to be careful because when they teach, they are responsible for what they teach. And if they draw people away from God because of their teaching, God's going to hold them accountable. It doesn't, and I've said it many times, it doesn't mean the person who is mistaught is any less accountable. They're supposed to be a Berean. They're supposed to go in and search the word. They're not without guilt just because they were taught wrong. But the teacher has a burden as well. They did not honor God in their teaching, and then they led somebody astray, which is another judgment upon them. A very serious thing for somebody to teach incorrectly. And one of the reasons I will talk to people who want to teach is, do they really understand what it is they're getting themselves into? Now, when somebody's called to be a teacher, they're going to teach. It's just no way about it. They're going to teach. But they need to understand how serious the matter is before God. It's not to be taken lightly. And I've seen teachers over the years take a quarterly and they're reading the quarterly on Sunday morning to, to and that's the first time they've read it. And I'm going, that's not being a good teacher. You, that is not doing what you're supposed to do. You need to be studying and getting prepared for this. What are, you know, have you even read the scripture <laughs> beforehand? And ask God what it is you're supposed to teach. And very important. And it says they they shall not come unto, near unto me to do the office of the priest unto me, nor come near to any of my holy things or the most holy place. They shall bear their shame and their abomination which they have committed. And, they, and I will make them keepers of the charge of the house and all the service thereof and, they, and all that shall be done therein. And here is a picture, just as I said, this is specifically the priest, but it's also a picture of Christians walking in carnality and flesh. God says, okay, you know, if you are truly a Christian, you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. You don't want the intimacy, therefore, I'm just going to make you do the labor that have fallen away. They get to do all the labor, but they don't get the intimacy. They don't get to go into the, te- the, the holy place and minister where the real job is. They don't get to go into the holy of holies to... Well, this leads you to believe, too, from verse 10, that not all of them have gone away. Always a remnant. God always has a remnant, always has, has had a remnant. The remnant will be able to do the ministering for God and go in. And that's true even of the Christians. We've got, in our churches, we have a number of people that aren't saved in our churches. The, weed, the story of the weed and the tares. There are people in churches that aren't saved, that may even look like they're saved initially. There are another group of people in the churches that are saved but not in intimate relationship with God because of their allowing of their sin and everything and their God by grace are going to go to heaven and then there's the true believers who follow God with all their heart well the weed and the tares will be weeded out at death when they stand before God and he's the one that will judge them because that's what he told the angels this is an incomplete picture of what will happen because even in a church we tend to know who is a real follower you know real follower of Jesus or, or apparently a real follower of Jesus they're dedicated they're they're reading their Bible, they're asking Bible questions, they're, they're witnessing. And then that whole another group that you're going, okay, maybe, maybe not. That's between, for God to determine. 
And we'll never know who is and who isn't because that's what the parable of the weed and the tares were when the angels asked, should we go out and tear up the, the, take out the tares? And he says, no, we'll let them grow together until the harvest. And then it'll be obvious which one's which, one's which and we don't want to damage the, the wheat as we tear up the tares. And sometimes in a church, the tear and the wheat get close together and may even become friends. And the wheat might think that they're dealing with a real follower of Christ, another, another wheat in the process, and find out that it's a false, false person. And I've seen people that have been on fire for God for years that all of a sudden totally fall away and will say, I never believed. Now, I don't know whether they didn't believe and they're just falling away and will come back or if they're completely never were God and just were doing things in the flesh. And it's not ours to judge because only God will know whether their prayer was legitimate and real and they've <clears throat> just fallen away through lack of study, lack of commitment, and they're going to be these people who are just his servants, not in an intimate relationship. And I have, but it's obvious that there's some form of physician in heaven. Okay, uh, what that is, I don't know. Uh, I, in my sinful nature, I want to aspire to be as high as I can in heaven. But you know, Jesus told the mother of the sons of Zebedee, you know, she goes, I want them to sit on your right and left hand. She goes, you don't even know what you're asking. And it's not mine to give. So there is some place, but Jesus didn't say there wasn't going to be those positions. He says, it's not mine to give. So there are positions in some form of hierarchy in heaven. For somebody to sit on his right hand and his left hand, that's the positions of power. There's some form of hierarchy in heaven from everything I can read in scripture. So is that to say that the Father is making these decisions? That's what Jesus told him, at least, at least while he was in his earthly form. He says the Father because he is submitted to the Father. Jesus is submitted to the Father and the Holy Spirit comes from both of them, uh, but they're all eternal. So it's kind of hard to begin to understand how something can begin from something that's eternal, and yet it's eternal as well. So, But Jesus takes that position of being in submission to the Father, and the Father makes decisions, and he submits to those decisions, says, I'm going to abide by the decisions of the Father. He said, told them, the Father will make the decision of who will sit on my right and left hand, even though they're one. It gets very complicated and and convoluted to try to figure out the unity of God in the diversity of God. That one statement, though, tells us that there are some kind of positions of authority and rankings even in heaven. Uh, in Revelation, we're told about the 24 elders that sit around the throne. So out of the millions and billions of people that have come to Christ, 24 of them get to sit in the, in the high positions of authority. Okay, how many levels of authority there are? I don't know. Uh, we, we clearly see some levels of authority. What does it all mean? I don't know. But I do have this picture that God has blessings and I want to be as faithful to him as he will let me be on this world so that when I get up to heaven, I will get some reward. But again, what does that mean once we're perfect? We know what it means down here on earth with our sin nature and our and our desire for power and authority, but what does it mean in heaven is going to be a whole other ball game because Jesus said that the woman, the widow woman that gave two pennies into the offering had given more 
than all the rich people had given because she gave out of her, they gave out of their abundance and she gave out of her poverty. So part of this is who the people that are going to rule in heaven are not the ones that we normally would pick. They may not be the, the, the Pauls and the Peters or the Spurgeons or the Billy Grahams that make it to those high positions. It could be somebody you've never heard of that all they did is spend all their time on their knees in prayer battling with Satan over the revival that these guys had. So we don't know in any way, shape, or form what it means to be rewarded in heaven. All we know is it appears in, from the scripture that there is some reward in heaven for us to deal with. It's in verse 15. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that have kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister unto me. They shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter into my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister unto me, and they shall keep my charge. So he picks out a very specific family. These are the Zadok was the, if I remember correctly, the grandson or the great-grandson of Eliezer, the second high priest. And he says, they've been faithful. This family, apparently as a whole, has been faithful to God uh, through, through thick and thin. And that is something that's good. And, you know, this does happen at times where we see families that generation after generation after generation follow God. And it has a lot to do with the fathers, I know, in their family, raising them correctly and not seeing a whole lot of rebellion in their children. And the sons of Zadok seem to be, in general, that family, they're, they're the priestly family that's going to follow. Now, I am sure that not every one of them has been faithful. So at some point, even they're going to have to be weeded out. But yes, in this one, it seems to be this family. And we see, again, we see this sometimes with families, generation after generation after generation are people that serve God and follow him. And most of it is the way their father raises them and, and trains them up and expects them to behave as opposed to, well, well, whatever you choose is yours. And that's the biggest problem we have in our world today. I've even seen some Christians that say, well, whatever my kids choose is okay with me. Okay, so you want your kids to choose hell and you're okay with it. You know, my attitude was very simple. My kids are going to church, period. You know, they don't want to go to church tough. They're going to church. Why? Not because church was all that important in one side, but at the same time, it was, I want them to be where they're going to hear the word of God as well as what they heard in the, at home because we always talked about God at home. We opened the Bible. We, we, we were always singing songs. You know, we, God was lifted up in the home, and they knew that they were going to church. And so this is very important for us. And this, is, this family of Zadok seemed to be this family that kept the traditions beyond just traditions. But this is, we're worshiping God. We're going to do this. And apparently the majority of the family honored God because he says they're going to be the ones that minister. They're going to have that intimate relationship with me. And what a blessing. What a blessing to have that said of a whole family. And verse 17, and there shall come to pass that when they enter in at the gate of the inner court, they shall be clothed in linen garments, and no wool shall be upon them while they minister in the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen bonnets on their, for on their heads, and they shall have linen breeches upon their loins, and they shall not gird themselves with anything that causes sweat. And when they go forth into the outer court, even in the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments wherein they ministered and lay them in the holy chambers and they shall put on other garments 
and they shall not and they shall not sanctify the people with their garments neither shall they shave their heads nor suffer their locks to grow long when they they shall pull, only pull their heads neither shall any priest drink wine when they enter into the inner court neither shall they take for them for their wives a widow nor her that is put away but they shall take maidens of the seed of Israel or the widows of the priest and they shall teach my people the, to dif the difference between the holy and the profane to cause them to discern between the clean and the unclean. So we look at here some rules for the priests. And it starts out that when they go in to serve in the inner court, they shall wear linen garments and not wool. And this goes all the way back to Leviticus when they were told to wear linen garments. They were cooler, did not cause pers perspiration. And he ta really sp talks about in verse 18 that they are not to do work that causes them to perspire which is pretty tough in the, in the, in the desert. <laughs> but here we see they were not to perspire before God. And this is kind of an interesting picture that he's putting out front. Because we are to rest in Christ and not work. And work produces sweat. And that's what Genesis tells us, that man was out in the Garden of Eden when they fell into sin, that they would grow their vegetables and their fruit by the sweat of their brow. Work became, instead of just a resting, pleasing God, to be in labor. And we are to enter into rest with Christ. And this is something that we as Christians are supposed to do. We're to walk in our faith rest. And if we're in our faith rest, it's not going to produce the fleshly results or labor or sweat in this, in this is what this picture is about. This picture is all about that if you're serving God and honoring him, it's not work. It's not the sweat of the brow. It's not your physical uh, flesh producing the work. And kind of a beautiful picture that he's making here. They're also to wear garments that breathe and, and keep the sweat down. And he says, don't wear wool. And wool is one of the things you wear to keep warm and you end up sweating if you're, if you're trying to work in wool. And very good for staying warm on a cold day, but not good to keep you from perspiring. And this is the picture that he's talking about. We are to serve God in faith rest. And this is what Hebrews is about in, all through it, is that we are to enter into the rest of God because he's done the work. Jesus came to this world and he performed the work of obeying the laws and paying the price of, the, of her sin. And he did the work so that we can rest in what he has done. And this is what I say so many times to people when they're going, well, I just don't know what I'm called to do. What do you like doing? What do you feel comfortable doing? If you are always at, ill at ease with what you're doing for God, it is probably not your faith rest position. That doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. Yeah, I love preaching and teaching. It's so much fun to me most of the time, but there are times when it gets to be difficult and there's, it's trying. But you know, when I'm really following God and knowing what I'm supposed to do, it's like, God, I would rather, nothing I'd rather do than teach and help people. What is it God's got us to do? When we're doing what he wants, in general, it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfectly easy. Doesn't mean that Satan isn't going to attack and try to make us feel miserable and uncomfortable. But overall, 
we are at peace and at rest with when we're doing what God wants us to do. And that's why, and I agree with many pastors I've heard, try a few things in the church and find out where you fit. When you find that thing that generally feels good, you know, I mean, most of the time you feel good doing it, do it, whatever that might be. And God's not looking, God's not looking to hurt us. He just wants us to get strength and he wants us to use our, use our faith. And when you're in the middle of what he wants you to do, it's pretty simple. It really is very simple. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not hard at times, but you know that you're doing what God wants you to do, and you're just saying, okay, God, maybe I'm doing something wrong at the moment, but you show me what it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm stressing out over this. You, I need your help. And he says unto them that when they leave the inner sanctuary, they're to change their clothes. <laughs> their clothes have this probably glory of God on it because he says you're not to, your clothes are not to bring sanctification to the people and it may be simply that he didn't want the people thinking these things uh, there's a verse in Acts where, where it says people were taking the handkerchiefs that Paul wiped the sweat off his face with and being healed and it's human nature to lift something up which is why I think Jesus, there's no recording of Jesus ever writing anything down or doing things the same way twice because he didn't want people doing, taking the stuff that he'd have and, and raising it up into a sacred item. But this whole idea, because we look at brazen serpent that they raised up in the wilderness when people were being bit by snakes and they said, just look at this and you'll be healed, later on became an idol. People were worshiping it rather than God. And finally was destroyed by Hezekiah, I believe it was, who destroyed it, saying this is an idol, we're getting rid of it. We tend to do just that, raise things up and make idols out of them. And God's saying, it was me, not, not the thing. It was me. And it says that they shall not shave their heads nor suffer their locks to grow, only they shall pull their heads or cut their hair in a neat, in a neat fashion. And some of this was, they weren't to shave their heads because that is what the, many of the priests for the idols did. They kept their heads shaved. And it was a way to show your honor. You got rid of all your hair. And God said, no, just keep it trimmed. Don't let it grow really long and ragged. Don't shave it. Keep it trimmed. And so he's telling the priest, you know, look presentable, but you're not shaving your heads. For, you're not, and you're not growing your hair to, to a mass of messy hair, keep it, keep it trimmed. And they shall not drink wine when they enter the inner court. And this is pretty important. Uh, when Nadab and Abihu were worshiping God, most people believe when, they, when the tabernacle was first opened up that they had gotten drunk that morning and were acting out and doing things stupidly and drawing attention to themselves. And so God is saying, your priests do not drink especially when they're serving in this case. He says, when they enter into the courts, they are not to drink. They are to be sober. And, and very important because when you get into alcohol, it does make you do things that you'll regret later on. And, it's, and he's saying the priests are to be above reproach. They are to do things the way I've taught them, not the way they want. And then this is really pointing back all the way to Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons that were were struck by fire in the opening of the tabernacle because they were 
they lit their own fires with, you know, that, on the censers, and most people believed that they were drunk, and God said goodbye. Uh, and then told Darren not to grieve for his sons. So here he is, he's saying, don't drink wine, neither shall they take for themselves wives of a widow, nor the, her that is put away, or that means divorce, and they shall take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel, or a widow of a priest before, because God's saying, I'm putting them at a higher standard. I want them to live above what everybody else could do. There was no reason why you, a widow couldn't marry, but he's saying, you're not going to. You're not going to take just any widow. You can take a widow of a priest, but you can't take just any widow in the land, and it has to be a daughter of Israel. And most of them were supposed to marry daughters of Israel anyway, even though few did otherwise. Uh, key ones to think of are Tamar, Ruth, and uh, Rahab, you know, very key people that are even in the line of Christ that, that would not be qualified to be married to a priest because of who they were. They were strangers to the people. And they shall teach the people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them discern between the clean and the unclean. And in controversy, they shall stand in judgment, and they shall judge it according to my judgment, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes of my assemblies, and they shall hollow my Sabbaths. So in other words, priests, Levites, you're supposed to be examples. Same thing in our day. Pastors should be somebody who's an example. You don't want to pick a pastor of a church who's drunk all the time and going out sleeping around with everybody because that's not lifting up Christ. And how can they then teach somebody to discern between right and wrong when they can't even obey right and wrong? And here he's saying, all right, priests, Levites, you're going to be teaching people. You're going to teach them the word of God. You're going to teach them how to make correct decisions. And you're going to be the judges. You know, this was a theocracy back then. The, the, the court was the judges in the temples and the tabernacle, supposedly. You know, they were the, basically the Supreme Court. You had local, local judges, but the ultimate decision would have been to go to the te te temple and present your case. And that was kind of usurped by the king to a degree when they got a king. But God's standard was always that it would be judged by the, by the t uh, temple priests and that they would be the, the head of those decisions. And that they were to hollow the, the Sabbath. They were to teach people to follow God. Verse 25, and they shall come, and they shall come at no dead person to defile themselves, but for father or for mother or for son or for daughter or for brother or for sister that has no husband, they shall defile themselves. And after he is cleansed, they shall be reckoned unto him seven days. And in the day that he goes into the sanctuary, into the inner court to minister into the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, says the Lord. And it shall be unto them an inheritance. I am their inheritance, and you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the meat of the offerings, and the sin offering, and the trespass offering, and every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. And the first of all, the first fruits of all things, and every ob oblation of all, and every sort of your oblation shall be the priest. You shall also give unto the priest the first of your dough, that he may cause the blessing to rest upon your house. And the priest shall not eat anything that is dead of itself, nor torn, whether it be fowl or beast. So these are all things, as we read this last chapter out, that come from the book of Leviticus. 
if you've read Leviticus, you, you know, or, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all these things are very familiar. Uh, they were not to touch anything that was dead unless it was immediate family. And this is literally immediate family, father, mother, wife, son, daughter, and your, your sister, if she was still living at home uh, without, a, without a husband. And it says, otherwise they're defiled. They can't serve. And again, that comes down to death is because of sin. We have death. And he's saying, you're not to be involved with sin and death. And he goes, if you are, you know, and in Leviticus it even says, if you're standing next to somebody and all of a sudden he st is struck dead, you have to go off for sacrifices and be unclean for seven days. And he's saying, you can't, you can't do anything to bury anybody unless it's a, a close relative. Do not go out to them. That means the poor soul out there that had no family, the priests were not the ones to go out and take care of that person. Uh, otherwise, he would defile himself beyond his offerings that could be done. He would be considered unclean completely. And it says when he does return, he's to offer a sacrifice for himself. And this is before he enters into the sanctuary. So he has to come in and offer a sin offering before God. And that's even just for dealing with his own family, you know, their death, is, even with his own, their death, or they had to offer a sacrifice for. And pretty serious instance, but God is trying to think, you know, all these are pictures of how we're supposed to live, separate from sin and death as Christians. And these are what the priests represent. They're supposed to be separate from sin and death. And this is what was coming into all of this. And it should, but then he says, and it shall be unto them an inheritance. I am their inheritance. They shall be given no possession in the land of Israel. I am their possession. So here we're starting to come back into how the land's going to be divided. Now, this is, again, I'm not sure if it's just when they come back, when Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they come back, or if it's going to be the millennial kingdom as well, that they're going to have divided lands for them. It's unclear. And maybe both. <laughs> But he says, the priest will not have a possession other than God. And here it doesn't even give them the city of refuge and their, and their possessions elsewhere, though I still believe they probably did, especially if it is um, the, second, the second temple. By the third temple, things are going to be a lot better. They, God could give them just their, their possessions, and they're going to be well taken care of in that millennial kingdom. But he goes on to talk about how they are to eat the meat of the offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and every dedicated thing of God that shall be theirs. So all the offerings they got a portion of, except for the burnt offering, which all they got was the, the hide of the, of the animal during that one. But they get to eat meat. And then it says, all the first fruits of all things and every oblation or gift of every sort of your oblation shall be the priests. The, and this is something that... Many Christians suffer with this idea of pastors getting a paycheck in the church. And yet God said, in the temple, in the tabernacle, the tithes and offerings belonged to the priest. There's this hierarchy of things, and God says when you serve him, there's a reward for serving him. Paul in the New Testament says that the pastor is worthy of double honor and do not, do not muzzle the ox that treads the wheat. Again, that comes from the Old Testament, but when you used an ox or a goat, uh, animal, they were able to eat of the straw that they were grinding. 19 and 29 there, and every dedicated thing 
when you really get down to all the offerings that the Jews were supposed to give, and we talk about the tithe, which was the 10%. First fruits was your first, your first uh, lamb or calf that was born and the very first part of your harvest. And then you get to keep the second and third harvest from it. Uh, which that first fruits was to go to the ta- uh, was to go to the tabernacle. There, by the time you get done, there's probably they, they, it's been said that there was about a 33 percent of your income went to the tabernacle. These are what they call the dedicated. dedicated. Anything that's dedicated to God and your first fruits, and it says all of this belongs to the priest, and the priest shall not eat of anything that dies on its own, which none of the Jews were allowed to eat anything that died on its own. Uh, that was forbidden in the in the Levitical laws. But the priests were very specifically, do not, you are separate. And all of this comes down to the idea of you are separated from death. And death being the picture of sin. And it says you're supposed to be completely separated from sin because you are the priests. And just as we as Christians are supposed to be separated from sin and doing the things of the flesh. Now, unfortunately, we still do a lot of the things of the flesh, but we're not supposed to. If our flesh is crucified as it's supposed to be, then I should live for God. And yet we don't do it perfectly. And again, the picture. The picture is an imperfect picture, but it is what it is. It says, priests don't touch dead things. Christians live without touching death. Well, theirs was a literal death, and ours is more of the spiritual yeah. stay away from what causes death. And the literal thing that I kind of hard, I think, most of us in our day-to-day walk have not really handled dead, thing, dead things, you know, other than when we cook. There are people that, that do with their jobs and everything, but most people have never touched a, a dead carcass other than a piece of meat if they're, if they're a cook. And there's people that haven't even done that. Especially in our day, you can just empty it out of a package right into the pan. You don't even have to touch it. Uh, so it is possible that the average person doesn't touch anything that's dead in their life. But you know the whole idea is the picture of don't touch things that produce death, and sin produces death. And if we're living our life the way we're supposed to, we're, we're to be separated from death and sin. We're not supposed to be permit, committed. That doesn't mean we totally isolate ourselves from the world, but we don't participate in the sins that they're doing. So, and this is the picture that he's trying to bring out in all of this: is that we are not supposed to be living that way. We're supposed to live separate lives. All right, we're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank for this day. We thank for this opportunity. Lord, help us to live by grace and to honor you and to live the way you, you want us to live in a life that is separated from sin and holy and sanctified. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.